Welcome to the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast. I'm your host, Rick Cole, and each week right here on the Hockey Podcast Network, we take a trip down memory lane back 50 years and bring you all the hockey news from that time exactly as it happened in the words of some of the greatest sports writers of all time. In this week's show, we're looking at the week of May 3rd to May 9th, 1971. A daily fantasy sports players, you know the basketball season isn't going to be around forever, so get in on all of the action now with DraftKings. That's the leader in one-day fantasy sports. DraftKings is giving new players a free shot at a million dollars in total prize money. Claim your free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes when using the code THPN during sign-up. Playing daily fantasy basketball is pretty simple. Just pick your lineup, stay under the salary cap, and see how your team stacks up against the competition. Feel the sweat like never before. Every dunk, steal, and assist means so much more with DraftKings daily fantasy lineup. And baseball fans, you may have missed out on season-long fantasy, so now's the time to get in on all the daily fantasy action where DraftKings has even more ways to make it rain. With DraftKings, payday comes every day for players, so what are you waiting for? Head to the app now. Download the DraftKings app now and use the code THPN during sign-up. This week, DraftKings is putting you in the action with a free shot at millions of dollars in total prize money. That's code THPN, and you can get a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes only at DraftKings. Minimum $5 deposit required, and eligibility restrictions do apply. See DraftKings.com for details. And of course, don't forget our other two sponsors as well. Newspapers.com, the world's largest online newspaper archive, enables us to get all our research that we put into these shows. And we're given great assistance by the Breakwell Brewing Company, a craft brewery slash restaurant located in downtown Port Colborne, Ontario. If you like what we do here each week and every day on Twitter, uh, you can help us out by going to patreon.com slash hockey 50 years and subscribe to this podcast. Subscribers not only get early access to each week's show, but also special content that we put out a few times a month uh, where we take a deep dive into sub-subjects. Uh, recently, we had a series on the uh, how the media dealt with the death of Terry Sawchuk, and we've got some very interesting projects in the hopper that will be coming out pretty soon. That's patreon.com slash hockey 50 years to subscribe. Now, we began this week knowing who the two Stanley Cup finalists for 1971 would be. The Montreal Canadiens had disposed of a plucky, determined Minnesota North Stars club, but it took six games, while the Chicago Blackhawks took the full seven-game limit to get by the New York Rangers in a series that, quite frankly, could have gone either way. In fact, many people wondered just how much would the Hawks have left after expending so much energy to defeat a very good Rangers squad. There was other hockey news this week as well, and we're going to get to some of that first. Uh, there was some other hockey being played at this time that 
uh, captured uh, a lot of fans' interest, and that was the Memorial Cup playoffs. Uh, the Eastern Final was about to begin, uh, and that would be between the Quebec Rampart of Quebec City and the Ontario champion St. Catharines Blackhawks. The first few games would be played in St. Catharines, and then the series would revert to Quebec City for the next couple. The lead story for this matchup was, of course, the two star players for either team. Both uh, generally considered to be the two top choices in this spring's uh, National Hockey League amateur draft. Guy Lafleur of Quebec and St. Catharines' Marcel Dion both led their respective leagues in scoring, and, and uh, in Lafleur's case, it was a complete runaway. But because Lafleur played in the offensive-centric Quebec Junior League, which is generally regarded as uh, pretty inferior to the Ontario circuit. Uh, it was difficult to really make a a complete and fair comparison between the two young superstars in waiting. So the head-to-head -head matchup was really anticipated so fans could get a good idea of which of these two talented youngsters was going to be the better player in the long run. Of course, there was just as much talk uh, around the series of, about the hockey and there was more talk about where these two guys were going to end up. Uh, Lafleur was generally given the nod as the first pick over Dion by most of the observers and the pundits, and that meant he would go first in the amateur draft. In a num normal year, that would be, in this season, the California Golden Seals, who wound up with the worst record in the National Hockey League in 70-71. But unfortunately, the Seals had traded away their first pick in this year's draft much earlier to, of all teams, the Montreal Canadiens. Of course, Montreal would be certain to grab uh, the player destined to be the next great French-Canadian NHL star, and by uh, all accounts, that was going to be Guy Lafleur. But everyone in hockey now recognizing the craftiness of Montreal general manager Sam Pollock Many people fully expected Sammy to pull off an even more magical trick and sweet-talk the Detroit Red Wings out of their pick. The Red Wings, of course, had the second-worst record in the league, and they were slated to make the number two selection. Now, of course, if the Canadians were able to manage to get Detroit to trade them that pick, that would munch, give Montreal the opportunity to grab young Dion as well, and that would have just been a dream come true for friends, fans in the province of Quebec. And a lot of observers felt that the Detroit franchise in definitely dire straits over this past mess of a season might be tempted to shore up a couple of very uh, uh, tough spots in their lineup. They need a goaltender, Phil Mir, Ken Dryden, and a defenseman, the name Terry Harper's come up for some immediate help and they might surrender that draft pick. Given the Wings had an inexperienced general manager in Ned Harkness, who had already traded away a budding superstar in Gary Younger, this really wasn't such an outlandish idea at the time. In fact, there was more than one hockey writer who reported that a deal involving Ken Dryden going to Detroit for that draft pick had already been consummated and agreed upon, I should say, 
back as far as previous December. But the immediate issue was to decide who would be the Eastern representative in the Memorial Cup final, and let's get to that. So Garden City Arena in St. Catharines was the scene of the first game. I, I wanted to go to that game, couldn't get tickets. Uh, <laughs> it was packed, to say the least. Uh, the Remparts took that one in what was considered a bit of an upset by a 4-2 score. Guy Lafleur led the way for Quebec with two goals, and Dion had uh, one for St. Catharines. But it was Dion who was generally the more impressive player during that game uh, by those who were there and saw it. Two unheralded Quebecers who starred in the game and were really mostly responsible for the Remparts victory were goalie Michelle de Guise, who stopped 46 of 48 St. Catharines drives, and Lafleur's line mate, winger Jacques Richard, who still is away from his draft year. And he was dangerous on every rush. De Guise, by the way, was not Quebec's regular netminder during this past season. The young net, uh, young goalkeeper was added from the Sorel Blackhawks of the Quebec League. And one of those curious Canadian Amateur Hockey Association rules that allowed certain leagues and teams to add players from another team and their particular group during the Memorial Cup playoffs. And the Remparts had obtained permission to bring De Guise onto their club uh under the guise probably although I couldn't find the exact reason that their goal ca- t- uh, their goaltender was a bit beat up and they needed a guy who would be able to uh, be depended upon by being healthy. Unique for junior hockey at the time nearly 6,000 fans in Quebec City got to see the game which was broadcast on closed circuit TV to La Colisée in Quebec and another 2,500 witnessed it at the Verdun Auditorium, a junior hockey on closed circuit TV that was just something that wasn't being done very often in those days. Well, the very next evening in St. Catharines, Dion showed where all the hype around him was about. He was not only the best player on the ice for either team, but probably the best player in a game being played on the planet Earth. He scored four times, he was dominant, and the Blackhawks trounced the Remparts by a score of 8-3, to and the series would now be tied at one game apiece. The St. Catharines main strategy right from the get-go in this one was one of intimidation. The Ramparts sustained a physical pounding that began with the opening face-off and it did not abate for the entire game. That resulted in an uneven, basically disorganized performance by the Quebec City kids, which was exactly what St. Catharines coach Frank Milnan had in mind when he told them to get out there and start hitting. So now the next two games would go to Friday and Saturday this week in Quebec City. So Friday's Game 3 would be played in front of a packed house, a raucous Quebec home crowd, and Guy Lafleur took center stage in that game. His two first period goals were all the Ramparts would need to win this game by a score of 3-1, and they took a 2-1 lead in the series. After a less than mediocre performance in Game 2, the goalie Michel de Guise rebounded and had a very spectacular game for Quebec. He repeatedly robbed Marcel Dion, who had at least four outstanding scoring chances only to be denied by the young Quebec netminder. However, this is where the series turned and the hockey became less of an attraction for this series uh, than anything else. Uh, the game and the series 
basically turned ugly on this night. St. Catharines lost two players, and one of them, Brian McKenzie, was likely to be suspended after he cross-checked the linesman at the game's end. But to make matters worse, earlier in the game, rough-and-tough defenseman Brian McBratney, by the way, a very good guy. I had a chance to meet him when I was in university. He had been ejected for allegedly striking a linesman as well, but that whole situation was... Uh, Pretty confusing as as far as the reporting went. Apparently a first period brawl between McBratney and Quebec's Michelle Briere, who's about 5'4", 145 pounds, nearly caused the game to get out of hand right there. And this was likely the fault of some goofy officiating. St. Catherine's goalie George Hume decided to join the fighting, which was taking place in the in the uh, Blackhawks defensive uh, zone. But it was more of a group wrestling uh, exhibition than it was a, a knockdown drag him out boxing match. Well, when Hume uh, tried to pry some Quebec players off the St. Catharines teammates. De Guise raced the length of the ice to try and uh, get, get Hume and, of course, even up the numbers. At that point, both goalkeepers should have been ejected according to Canadian Amateur Hockey Association rules and the rules of the OHA. But neither goalie was even penalized and the players began to get the idea after order had sort of been restored that there were going to be no holds barred in this game and that's the way they played it. In fact, George Hume again became involved in a fight in the third period involving teammate Bob McMillan who's uh, usually a placid sort of player, not the type of guy who uh, had fighting on his list of things that he planned to do in every game. Once again, George got in a fight, wasn't penalized, but this time DeGuise, probably on orders from his coach, remained in his own net. The incident that saw McBratney banned was at the end of the first period brawl in which he, he kind of swung a forearm at a linesman, but he missed, and so they gave him a 10-minute misconduct, meaning he was going to get back in the game a little later bad move on the officials but for some reason the burly defenseman McBratney he wasn't ushered from the ice right away so a minute later after some other uh, rough activity he engaged with another linesman and he connected which was uh, sort of a half-hearted blow it was actually more of a push he did no damage not that it matters and it was at that point that he was finally given the game misconduct. As McBratney was escorted finally from the ice surface to the alleyway to the St. Catharines dressing room, fans pelted him with all sorts of debris and they spat on him as well. Teammate Pierre Guité decided to pick out one transgressing fan from his perch in the penalty box. Guité left the sin bin and promptly speared that fan in the stomach. It was at that point that Quebec City Police became involved to try and restore some semblance in order so that the game could continue and it finally did to its uh, ignominious conclusion. Saturday's game saw Quebec win 6-1 to in a game that the, the Blackhawks seemed to be more preoccupied with uh, violence than they were with hockey skill. Uh, and if you thought Friday's extra extracurricular activities exceeded the boundaries of good taste, you wouldn't like what transpired on Saturday night. It was basically a riot. The hockey part of the match saw Guy Lafleur once again star. His three goals were once again all that the Ramparts needed to win this game. But once again as well, what should have been a great hockey series was marred by senseless brawling and even worse, 
active fan participation in the violence. The stupid uh, fighting really didn't get fully underway until the final few minutes of the game. And those who would defend the St. Catharines team would point to frustration enabled by incompetent officiating and the brilliance of a goalkeeper that never even played for the Remparts during the season, of course, Young de Guise. That boiled over on St. Catharines' part, the frustration that is, according to those defending the Blackhawks, late in the third period. This time, though, it got more than ugly. People who should not have involved in a hockey match were injured. Now, if you were keeping score of who won the brawling, St. Catharines won every confrontation. They won every fight, hands down. But unfortunately, one of those confrontations included a Quebec City police officer who was cut for several stitches on the face or forehead when he happened to come in contact with a hockey stick wielded by St. Catherine forward Mike Bloom. But this was not a case of Bloom uh, disrespecting the authority of a police officer. Uh, Mike was actually attempting to strike a fan who spat upon him with his stick. His aim was bad, and he caught the Quebec cop instead, regardless of why, how, or what the aim was. None of this should ever have happened, but it did, and it would affect the outcome of this series. So now with it standing at 3-1 to one for Quebec, the series was set to return to St. Catharines for Game 5. But the Blackhawks already, before they even left Quebec City, said that if they were to be successful in that match back home, they would not play another game in Quebec City and would request a neutral site contest. The Hawks also made a request to the Canadian Amateur Hockey Association to bring in Ottawa 67's goalie Michelle Bunny LaRock to serve as a standby for George Hume who was nursing some minor injuries. Now although Quebec had been allowed to use Sorel goalie De Guise, the request by St. Catharines to use LaRock under similar circumstances for some reason was not approved by the Canadian Amateur Hockey Association. They ruled that Bunny should have been added to the St. Catharines team before the series and not midway through. But in a very curious set of circumstances, St. Catharines was allowed to try and bring in Peterborough goalie John Garrett, almost as good a prospect as LaRock at this time. But the poor uh, Blackhawks learned that Garrett was uh, in enjoying a vacation in Florida and they couldn't reach him. So the series goes back to St. Catharines and next week's show will tell you about the bizarre events and how this series would end. We have a few other hockey notes before getting to the Stanley Cup final. Uh, first up, there's a lot of news out of St. Louis, of course, with Scotty Bowman uh, leaving the Blues and Everybody and his brother was rumored to be taking over the St. Louis Hockey Club. The first story that came out at the beginning of the week had former Montreal Canadiens, Toronto Maple Leafs, and Blues star Dickie Moore, now retired. He was said to be in line to replace Bowman as general manager of the St. Louis Club. People tried to reach Dickie Moore for comment. Dickie owns a, an equipment rental business in Montreal at this time, and he was actually in Europe at a at a convention, had nothing to do with hockey, and uh, there was no answer from Dickie about this. At the same time, early in the week, the first rumors of where Bowman 
was going to end up, and it seemed the general consensus of all those reporting on these things was that Scotty was going to the West Coast and was going to end up as either general manager and coach at the Los Angeles Kings or with the California Golden Seals in Oakland. Now, Bowman was asked if he had received a contract offer to run the seals from Charles O. Finley by every reporter who could get through to him. And initially, at the beginning of the week, Scotty just wouldn't comment on anything to do with his future. A few days after these initial initial uh, questions to Scotty, he did concede that there was a lot to consider about a move west, but he said something very curious. He said that working for Finley would likely be a lot easier than working for the Solomon family in St. Louis. Now, why would you, ask, you may ask, would Scotty Bowman have that opinion? Well, he said because Finley, with his baseball team and his many other business interests, is not around the hockey team as much as the Solomons were around the Blues. For his part, Finley told California sports writers in Oakland and San Francisco that he had made no offer to Bowman and that Bowman becoming the general manager of the Seals was no slam dunk. Some people claiming to have inside information said that the plan would be for Bowman to agree to become the general manager coach of, of the uh, Seals Hockey Club, but coach Freddie Glover would remain on staff as a director of player personnel. There was some other uh, news made by the Blues as well this week. Uh, they announced that they had purchased the troubled Denver Western Hockey League franchise, but it was unclear if the, the St. Louis hockey team and the NHL was going to operate its farm club in, Saint, in Kansas City of the Central League and the Denver team or whether they would move the Kansas City Blues to the Western Circuit. And the Blues weren't done making news by Wednesday either. In fact, as the week drew to a close on Friday, rumors had already begun circulating that the Blues were trying to uh, arrange a press conference for Friday and that they were going to unveil a mystery man as the new general manager of the team. Well, that closely guarded secret wasn't well guarded, closely guarded after all. And by Friday, we knew what was going to happen. Uh, reporters, especially those in St. Louis, uncovered the fact that Lynn Patrick, who was the original general manager of the Blues when they came into the National Hockey League in 1967, would return to his post as general manager once again. Rumors this week had had Sid Abel coming from Detroit to be the new general manager. They weren't quite accurate. Abel was hired by the Blues, but not to be general manager, but instead to take over behind the bench as coach. And it was announced at a Friday press conference. Now, what happens to Al Arbor in all this? Well, one report out of Vancouver had their general manager, Bud Poyle, hopeful of making a trade with the Blues to bring Al to the Vancouver organization, whereupon he would be installed as the coach of the American Hockey League Vancouver farm team, the Rochester Americans. And Al, of course, was the captain of that team for many years and basically the face of the AHL franchise. Friday's press conference uh, shot down that rumor, though, as Arbor 
it was announced, would be retained as the assistant general manager to Lynn Patrick. And you can see that the uh, idea there was that Al would stay with the Blues and probably run the organization when Patrick, who's getting up in years, would finally retire. Couple other hockey notes as well this week. The Boston Bruins removed speculation about the future of coach Tom Johnson. Tom wasn't going to be a one-year wonder. The Bruins gave him a new two-year contract to continue behind the Boston bench. And the Pittsburgh Penguins made a, a rather sad announcement, but one that certainly everyone agreed with. Uh, the Penguins said that they are going to retire jersey sweater number 21, which had been worn by their young star Michelle Briere, who recently passed away from injuries he sustained in a car accident nearly a year ago. And so that takes us to the biggest story of this week, the Stanley Cup Final. The first game was slated to go in Chicago on Tuesday evening, and as far as predictions were going, opinions seemed to be split squarely down the middle, with pundits equally divided between picking the Habs or the Hawks. Bookies were also conflicted, with the odds on each game shifting basically on location, with the home team in each match being declared a slight favorite in that particular game. The only question mark for Montreal's lineup was winger John Ferguson, hampered by a hip injury, and he was listed as questionable, in fact, actually doubtful, for the first game. One place the Habs uh, crew was not in question was in goal, where everyone knew that rookie sensation goalie Ken Dryden would attempt to continue his Stanley Cup wizardry for at least and only the final round. On the Chicago side of the ledger, everyone on their club was pretty healthy with a possible exception of center Pitt Martin. Pitt was nursing what was described as torn knee muscles. Uh, Pitt did skate on Chicago Stadium on Monday and uh, he didn't engage in any contact activity, but he said that he hoped to be in the lineup for the Hawks for Tuesday's first game. Those of you who are not historians who weren't around at this time probably are not completely familiar with the lineups of these two teams. And to truly understand this series, you got to know who these teams were. Well, the Montreal Gazette uh, compiled a great scouting report for each significant player in this series. And we think this will give you a good idea of what to expect as these two unlikely combatants, no one expected a Montreal-Chicago final, as these two, these two teams prepared to square off. Uh, we'll give you an idea of who these guys actually were, according to the... Uh, uh, Montreal Gazette and mainly uh, hockey writer Pat Kern, one of the best around the NHL at this time. As I looked at this scouting report, there were a few things that I, I even learned and I was a hockey nerd at that time. You, you, I knew every player in the league. Well, the Blackhawks, uh, we'll start with them. The goaltenders, uh, number one man, of course, Tony Esposito, who should be shell-shocked after that crazy New York series, but don't count on it. The only things that might hurt Tony were bad rebounds, according to Pat Curran. The backup goalie, I did not know this at the time, was a veteran minor leaguer by the name of Jimmy McLeod, who had a fine season in the Western Hockey League with Portland. He was Chicago, uh, owned his NHL rights, so they called him uh, up to the Hawks to be a veteran backup for Tony. It had been uh, 21, 22-year-old uh Central Hockey League player by the name of Ken Brown, but they didn't feel it was fair 
to possibly have to stick young Ken in goal in the heat of a Stanley Cup final. The defense for the Chicago, well, you have Pat Stapleton, second only to Bobby Hall as a semifinal standout. Pat really lugs the puck, and he figured in all 16 playoff goals. Bill White was a giant next to Pat and equally strong and this pair killed all Chicago penalties and they handled most of the key defensive work as well. Doug Jarrett was a veteran Chicago blue liner. Uh, He must have, he has to hit, he has to body check to be effective and uh, he didn't do it against the Rangers and didn't play as well as most thought he should. Keith Magnuson is a college hockey grad with karate training. Uh, He likes to fight, but he was very erratic against the Rangers, one of the reasons the Hawks didn't win the series a little more quickly than they could have. Young Jerry Korab still needs seasoning, but he's big, ready, and willing to mix it up, but he's strictly a guy who's going to play only if one of the top four can't make it. And a a, a sixth defenseman uh, that the the Hawks have... uh, maybe in there as well. Uh, A young fellow by the name of Rick Foley, another one called up from Western Hockey League, Portland. He's 6'4 and 232 pounds. And if things turn in this series the way they did in the Junior A Eastern Final, that's when he'll be most effective. The uh, main centers for the Blackhawks, well, you have Stan Makita. Uh, He's a veteran. He doesn't run high in scoring as he usually did, but he still had a fine season and a playoff this year, and there's nothing he can't do with the puck, and the Habs will have to watch out for him. Second man is Pitt Martin. The knee injury, according to Pat Kern, shouldn't keep him out for too long, and he's probably the best two-way center on the Chicago team, and he was a true standout against the Rangers. Third-line center, Danny O'Shea. He's a real worker after coming in a trade from the North Stars, and he did a good job against the top forward lines against whom he played. Fourth line center, the the Hawks really only use three, as do the Canadians, but the fourth center is little Lou Angotti. He's a cast off from several other NHL clubs, but he's always played well in Chicago, and he's ready to help when he comes off the bench. Well, the number one left winger, of course, is Bobby the Golden Jet, Bobby Hull. He's still the best in the league at that position on the left side. He proved it with playoff goals against the Rangers. He's the heart of the Hawks with the stamina of a bull. Number two on the left side is Bobby's younger brother, Dennis Hull. Uh, he had a 40-goal season this year, but he didn't produce much in the semifinal. But he's got the big shot, and that big shot can hurt, and you got to worry about Dryden's welfare uh, with Dennis and Bobby both firing pucks at him. Third left winger, uh, Danny Maloney. He's a rookie this year. He's a strong skater and a good checker, and he backs off from no one. The extra left winger, The veteran Eric Nesterenko, who's looked pretty tired through these playoffs, but his experience as a penalty killer should be valuable. On the right side, the Hawks have four uh, pretty good players, actually. The veteran Chico Mackey, uh, known as a journeyman forward. He's very, very underrated, though. He's the cover man checker for Bobby and Pitt Martin on that number number one line with Bobby on it. Uh, Jim Pappen is another right winger, not the two-man probably. And he had a new life with the Hawks after being traded from Toronto three years ago. And he, this year in the playoffs, has scored five goals. And uh, he may yet have some other big goals in his toolbox in this series. 
Cliff Coral is the third left winger, right winger, sorry, and he is another college graduate on on uh, Chicago. Cliff is a guy who digs in the corners. He's a good checker, and he's come through in the playoffs as well with five goals. And the fourth winger is a uh, Jerry Pinder. Uh, he's a mixed up kid right now. He quit the team last week, then uh, decided to come back. And no one really knows a lot about Jerry. And he could come up big for the Hawks, or he may not even see the ice. So who are the men from Montreal who will counteract this f- powerful Chicago lineup? Well, the goalkeeping, Ken Dryden will be the number one in the playoffs, and he might have to repeat his efforts in the Boston series. Uh, reports had him being only so-so against Minnesota, but here's one thing that uh, is a telling fact. The Blackhawks really respect Dryden's ability. The backup goalie will be Rokachem Vashon. Uh, he's now the second goalie in the Montreal chain. He doesn't have a start in the playoffs so far. And you got to expect that if Rogie gets in, his timing's going to be off. And disaster will probably have befallen the Habs. The third guy is Phil Mir. He uh, was second on the poll all the year until uh, Ken Dryden arrived. And actually, he's not waiting for a chance in the playoffs. Phil Mir is waiting for a trade. Montreal's defense is extremely strong, and they use basically five guys. Terry Harper is a guy that Bobby Hull finds to be basically an octopus. Terry always plays best when the chips are down. Jacques Laperriere compliments Harper uh, just like ham and eggs, I guess you could say. Uh, he's got four goals, and he's got a hell of a shot from the point, and uh, he's done those in the playoffs, and that's when Jacques plays his best. J.C. Tremblay killed the Hawks in past series during the playoffs, and he could do it again if the Hawks let J.C. dangle a bit, which he's so good at doing. We understand the Hawks' strategy is to force J.C. into mistakes, and that may be their best shot at disrupting a Montreal attack and power play that J.C. often quarterbacks. Guy Lapointe is the fourth man. He is a strong rookie this year who found his shot again in the playoffs after going in a slump near the end of the season and he gives Montreal actually a slight edge on the defense core. The fifth man is Pierre Bouchard. They call him Butch, uh, the same nickname his dad played when he starred for Canadians in a bygone era. Pierre got his chance against Boston. He didn't muff it. He is a good swing rear guard and he can fill in on either the first or second defense pairing. Here's where I think the Habs really have an edge and this is down the middle. Jean Beliveau is the number one center and he is of course the best playoff center of all time in the, in the opinion of many and he's still coming through for the Habs just short of his 40th birthday. Henri Richard is one of the old reliables as well. Uh, his specialty puck control and skating and there aren't many Hawks who are probably going to be able to keep up with little Henri the pocket rocket. Jacques Lemaire listed as the third center. He did his thing against Boston's Phil Esposito. He's versatile. He's got speed and a hot shot and a guy listed as the fourth center is Peter Mahovlich. He's not such a friendly giant. When the going gets rough Peter has learned to add an edge to his what was once a genteel sort of game and he's a dangerous scorer even as a penalty killer. Canadians use basically only three guys on the left side. 
number one man, who else but the big M, Frank Mahovlich. He's enjoying his best playoff season of his career, and he's leading the, the playoffs in scoring. He is probably a major factor in the Canadians' return to prominence this season in a brilliant trade engineered by Sammy Pollock. John Ferguson is hurt, but it's expected he will be back early in this series at some point. He smells the playoff money even when he's hurt, and the Hawks can't forget about him. He can do a lot of damage, and young Mark Tardiff hasn't yet reached his potential. He's a moody young kid, but he has the tools to figure high in this final series. On the right side, the top right winger for the Canadians is the roadrunner, Ivan Cornwallier, playing the best hockey of his career. Cornway is bound to score a few with his bullet shot and his even more blinding speed. Rajan Uhl, he's uh, basically the same uh, the same as Mark Tardiff, a young guy, same age. Both came out of the Montreal Junior Canadiens. Uh, he's a willing but unlucky player. He doesn't have the gifted hands around the net, doesn't score a lot. Uh, he's in his first uh, cup final. He might be a little uncertain. Claude LaRose is trying to make up for a poor season. He's got experience in the playoffs and he'll be the number three right winger, but he'll be pressed by a young fella by the name of Phil Roberto out of uh, Niagara Falls Junior A. Uh, an ankle injury slowed him down after he had a pretty good rookie season, but he's a guy with a lot of muscle. He, he's known by the Habs as a disruptor and that could be trouble for the Hawks. So game one, we thought uh, this series uh, was going to be an evenly matched series. And you know what? We weren't wrong and neither was anybody else. There was not a unique thought that these two teams were pretty evenly matched. Uh, at least based on game one, that's exactly how it turned out. It took until the second minute of the second overtime to decide the issue. And the Blackhawks prevailed in that opening game by a score two to one. It was Jim Pappen who netted the winner at the 111 mark of the second extra frame when he tipped in a goal mouth pass from Stan Makita. Jacques Lemaire had given Montreal the lead in the middle stanza before Bobby Hall tied the game just shy of the eight minute mark of the third period. This was believed to be the first time two United States college graduate goalies had faced each other in a Stanley Cup playoff game, and neither of those two guys disappointed anyone. Ken Dryden stopped 56 of 58 Chicago shots in goal for Montreal, while Tony Esposito was good on 36 of 37 Habs drives for the Hawks. So that took us to Thursday night once again in Chicago Stadium and it looked now like possibly the Canadians bubble had finally burst. We've said that before but this really didn't look good against this tough Chicago team. The Hawks took a 2-0 lead in the final series and what was uh, especially troubling for the Habs faithful was that the star of the game wasn't a Stan Makita or a Bobby Hall or a Pat Stapleton, but a much lesser light. As Louis Angotti, remember we mentioned him earlier, a guy coming off the bench? He had two goals and two assists to lead the Hawks 
to a 5-3 to three victory. Here's what Ted D'Amato of the Chicago Tribune wrote about uh, Louis Angotti's game. He said, Little Louis Angotti, the player with the shortest stride in the National Hockey League, gave the Blackhawks a 20-league boot step toward the World Championship of Professional Hockey. The former Michigan Tech star, who stands 5'8", caught up with two loose pucks and put them behind Ken Dryden, the biggest goalie in the league, at 6-4. These goals provided the Chicago clan with a 5-3 victory margin over the Montreal Canadiens, their second in a row in the Stanley Cup Final. DeMatta also reports on a, an incident that marred the uh, joy of the nearly 20,000, probably more than 20,000 fans at Chicago Stadium. During the 17th minute of the second period, Chicago defenseman Pat Stapleton, he's their number one rear guard, as we mentioned, left the action with a severe skate cut across his right cheek. It came off the blade of Rajon Ull, the Montreal right winger, during a scramble in the Hawks zone. Stapleton was rushed to a Chicago hospital where a plastic surgeon sewed up his face. The majority of the uncounted stitches pulling together the right side of his upper lip, which was cut completely through. Dr. Myron Tremaine, uh, the Chicago Blackhawks team doctor, said the remainder of the gash was superfluous. And he said, we won't even hold him in hospital overnight. And yes, he's going to come back for Sunday's game. So the series was going to return to Montreal for games three and four. Uh, The last game we'll cover this week is that Sunday afternoon contest at the Forum on National American TV and, of course, on National TV in Canada. Uh, The Chicago Papers this week, uh, since that last game Thursday, were full of how the Blackhawks had, quote, killed the Canadians and that the Montreal club was, well, basically all but dead and would likely offer little resistance the rest of the way even in the games at the Forum. But those with a more realistic and more even view of this series did not prematurely award the Cup to the Hawks just yet. Even the aforementioned Ted D'Amata of the Tribune in Chicago reported that Game 3 on national TV on Sunday would be the pivotal game of the series. And indeed, it would be. Game 3 at the Forum was... uh everything Habs fans thought it would be, and everything that the Blackhawks were fearing. It was a great day for the Mahavliches, according to Red Burnett. The Toronto Star sports writer was assigned to cover the final, and since he had a very neutral view, we're going to give you a bit of his report. Red wrote that it was a great day for the Mahavliches. Frank scored the tying and clinching goals, and younger brother Pete notched the important first goal to ignite the Canadians' comeback in which they overcame a two-goal deficit to claw the Chicago Blackhawks by a score of 4-2. The result left Canadians trailing 2-1 in the best-of-seven Stanley Cup final with the fourth game in Montreal on Tuesday night. Beaming from the stands was their father, 
Peter Mahavlich Sr. paying his first visit to Montreal since he arrived here in Canada as an immigrant from Croatia in 1929. In a raucous Montreal dressing room after the game, all Canadians to a man agreed they had moved back into the win column by scrapping an overcautious defensive game for their normal freewheeling system which features skating, forechecking, and headmanning the puck and that was the successful formula that moved the Canadians back into contention in this series. Coach Al McNeil said, It was our sustained game of offense which turned the tide. I warned them before and during each period not to fall back as they had been doing in Chicago. McNeil predicted... We'll tie the series on Tuesday if we keep carrying the play to them like we did tonight. The Blackhawks, for their part, thought that they'd been jobbed by referee John Ashley in the penalty department. Uh, They said they just got the worst of it from Ashley, and the worst of Ashley, they contend, is not very good at all. Pat Stapleton said, maybe we did earn all our penalties, but if we did, then the Habs should have had a hell of a lot more than they got because they fouled us plenty of times. Neutral observers such as Bud Poyle of the Vancouver Canucks or the Philadelphia Flyers uh, director of player personnel Marcel Peltier thought that Ashley called a good game and that's notable because there aren't many people who actually thought John Ashley called a good game ever. But here's a stat that tells the story and how the Canadians change in strategy, change in game plan actually worked out for them. They outshot the Hawks in this game 40 to 18, 13 to 8 in the first, 16 to 6 in the middle frame, and 11 to 4 in an outstanding defensive performance in the final period. That gives you an idea about how much Canadians controlled the puck, and the only reason, actually, that the score was as close as 4 to 2 was the tremendous goalkeeping of Tony Esposito, who played another great game in the Chicago goal. So we'll return next week with the story of the rest. Well, maybe not the rest of the Stanley Cup final. I don't want to give any spoilers away, but the Hawks lead 2-1. to And we'll, we'll tell you that we will have three games to report on next week, which means the series is going to go at least six. So that's our show this week, everyone. And uh, what did we learn in this uh, really eventful hockey week for first week of May, while well, we learned how the St. Louis Blues were going to tackle the task of replacing Scotty Bowman, whether it would be a step forward or a step back for the Blues, time would only tell. Uh, we found that junior hockey can be just as, if not more intense, than what the big guys in the NHL play, and the Memorial Cup playoffs turned very ugly in the Eastern Final. And we learned that while it looked like the Canadians' bubble was finally bursting, the Habs were not yet to be allowed to be counted out, and they turned things around in Game 3. The story of the 1971 Stanley Cup playoffs was yet to be written. So as we mentioned, next week we're going to look at the next three games of the 1971 Stanley Cup Final. We're also going to report on that Eastern Final for the Memorial Cup, the Junior A Hockey Playoffs. And it'll come to an end that absolutely no one would be happy with. And there's going to be a lot more off-season hockey news going around. And we'll have the biggest stories in that area for you as well. 
The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole. I can't thank Andy enough for everything he does to put this uh, podcast together. If you want to put a podcast together, if you have an interesting idea for one, get a hold of me. I'll put you in contact with Andy and maybe you guys can put a good show together. Uh, The very popular Juno-nominated Toronto indie rock group, the Rural Alberta Advantage, provides our introduction and exit music. And once things open up again, if you ever get a chance to see them perform live, don't miss the opportunity. They put on a great show. Other music in this podcast and sound effects are produced by Andy Cole. Our research comes from files at the Toronto Star, the Globe and Mail, and of course the many fine publications found at newspapers.com. You can find us on Twitter at at Hockey50Years. We're on Facebook under the 50 Years Ago in Hockey banner. We have a WordPress site, Hockey50YearsAgo.com. And of course, we're on the Hockey Podcast Network. And you can get this podcast wherever your favorite podcasts can be found. Thanks to everyone who tunes in every week to our show. And on that note, we will be back with more of the Stanley Cup Finals for 1971 next time around. When the-